Hey, this is Brad. We know there are a lot of things competing for your time. However, if you've taken the time to listen to our podcast and you like what we're doing, we'd love it if you would subscribe, review, or rate us. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this segment of Corner Table Talk. I am your host, Brad Johnson, and we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So over several decades spent in the restaurant business, I've had the good fortune of witnessing young people who are just beginning to embark on their chosen profession. Most often, restaurants provide a social outlet, an ear to the ground, or in some cases, an opportunity to network and possibly rub shoulders with individuals who might provide an introduction to that next connection. Aspiring artists have been a main source of the employee pool for restaurants, bars, and clubs way before Bruce Willis was discovered tending bar at Cafe Central on New York City's Upper West Side. (laughs) I'd make the case that the benefits of employment in restaurants, bars, and clubs are not just the help with making ends meet while pursuing artistic endeavors, but the connections and relationships made along the way. And it's not just the arts. I've had law school students and recently a high school student who let me know the job we provided allowed him to purchase his first car. He actually took me into the parking lot and proudly showed it off. And I have to admit, that feels good. It was good to know that you helped somebody out along the way. And we watched these people who, in most cases, briefly pass through our lives as operators and are warmed when they return for a visit or we see them on the road to accomplishing their goals and, in some cases, see their faces on the stage or screen. My guest today, the actor Clifton Powell, has appeared in over 100 feature films and television shows. And I was shocked when I saw that number, although I've seen him so much, I know he's been steady working, but that's a big number. Some of his most memorable roles have been in major movies such as Ray and Clifton's role as Ray Charles' longtime band manager and friend, Jeff Brown. For that, by the way, he got a a NAACP Image Award nomination, or his cold, whispering taunting of Lorenz Tate and his character Cuddy in the cult classic Dead Presidents. So from Menace to Society to Selma and Clifton's portrayal of Dr. Martin Luther King, Clifton Powell on the screen, and you do not forget him. Sharing the same hometown as Marvin Gaye, I've known this Mayfair, Northeast Washington, D.C. native since the late 80s when we crossed paths in Los Angeles. Though he was a lot less recognizable then, I can tell you in my interactions with Clifton, he's the same humble, cool, warm, and engaging person he was then. That's not to say he hasn't grown. Hollywood, fatherhood, marriage, age, and life experiences, well, we're all constantly evolving, aren't we? I've been looking forward to sitting down and reconnecting with my friend, Clifton Powell. He's here today joining us on Corner Table Talk. What's up, Clifton? Welcome, brother. I'm going to take a line from a famous man that I had an opportunity to portray 
back in 1997. And his name was Martin Luther King Jr. And as David Abernathy was introducing him, he got up and he said, I'm so happy to be here this afternoon. But I must say that introduction was amazing by my friend Ralph Abernathy. And I must say it's always good to have your friend and closest associate say something good about you. <laughs> That's a, a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. I have to say to you all out there, I am, I have my glasses on because I know I'm going to be crying through this segment as I'm already tearing up because Brad Johnson has been my friend and I would really say responsible for me having early employment in LA and pursuing an acting career that has taken me places that I never imagined and has always been the warm and loving, supporting person, supportive person over the last 25, almost 30 years, and has always been encouraging and has always been supportive, even after I left the Roxbury, and has always had a, a, a word of inspiration and has always, for me, led by example. So I want to Give you kudos, Brad, for being there for me. I got to tell you, I'm emotional because I never imagined 25 years later that I would be on a podcast with you talking about this journey that we both have gone through. And it's just a blessing, man. And I got to tell you, if I take my glasses off, you'll see that I'm on the verge of tears, man, because I, I think what I want people to take away from this podcast, man, is that if you believe and you stay focused and you stay a good person, it can happen. It doesn't matter how much money you make, how much fame you have. Come on, Debbie Allen was, I, I don't know if you ever known that, Brad, but Debbie Allen was my ballet teacher in high school. I did not know that, brother. Let's yeah, pause Debbie, here because I don't want to, I don't want to give too much yeah. away here, Cliff. And okay, I appreciate okay. your kind words, brother. And to, uh, I'm just saying to you guys, I'm going I'm, to I'm stop Brad <laughs> right here and say to you guys, that guy right there is number one, man. You, you I, I'm sitting here, Brad. Really, a lot of people poured into me, but man, you were one of the first people that inspired me in LA and gave me a job to boot and stuck with me the whole well, journey. Thank you, so brother. there you have it. And, and that was not hard to do, man. You were you were a star then, and you're a star now. So thank you, Clifton, for that, man. I I, I really am moved, and I'm and I'm touched by your words. So we kick things off here with what I call our short order questions. So just a few things to give us a little flavor and get you rolling. So tell me, man, what are you listening to musically these days? What's on your playlist, man? <laughs> I, hey, Brad, man, honestly, bro, I'm still listening to the old Motown. I'm listening to the Temptations. I'm listening. When I work out, I'm with James Brown every day, uh, walk three days a week. And then, and then I listen to Tupac. I'm still stuck with mm -hmm. Tupac and Biggie. And then I like the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> I, I like Average White Band. I, I like, of course, Marvin, all, all Motown, but Marvin has always been inspirational. So that's pretty much my that's playlist. That's a good playlist, man. And then I go a little bit of jazz, a little bit of jazz with Miles mm -hmm. and all the jazz yeah. breaks. And then, oh, yep. And when I get down and I need some real inspiration, I go to Marvin Sapp, never could have made it. Mm -hmm. I go to Al Jarreau, We Got By, and then I wrap it up with Aretha Franklin, Old Mary, Don't oh, You Weep. Oh, man. Well, I, 
you got me ready to go now. So tell me, man, first thing in the morning, Clifton, what are you drinking, man? What's your morning beverage? The first thing I drink in the morning is either water or watermelon juice. I, I've discovered watermelon juice because it's high in potassium and I'm trying to deal with my blood pressure and, you know, blood pressure issues running my family. So I'm on, I'm drinking watermelon juice. I, it's so ironic you said that because the other day I, I bought a bottle of coconut water. So I'm going with straight water. Every now and then my girl will put some lemon in the water that helps with your liver. So I'm going lemon water, straight water, uh, watermelon juice, and coconut water. I love that, man. I love that. Yes, sir. So is there a favorite place in your house, man, that you go to when you need that peaceful moment? When I really need a peaceful moment, man, I go lay in the bed. I close the door in the bedroom. My girl has a room. Um, and she's kind of made her room like a real spiritual room. It's got futon in there and it's real spiritual. And she's got sayings on the wall and all the real spiritual stuff. But I go and I close the door to the bedroom and just close the blinds and just kind of like just meditate mm -hmm. for a bit and just vegetate. Mm -hmm. I, I find for me at 66 that I'm taking much better care of myself. This pandemic has really dealt a blow to people's mental balance, so to speak. And back in the day, oh, just tell, he doesn't need to get a nap. I go back to yeah. that. I just go back yeah. to that. Back in our day, they give you ginger ale. They give you some sad. My father had this magical sad bread. I don't give a dag on if you got busted in the head. My side said, put some sad on it, give him some ginger ale and some Pepto-Bismol, and he'll be all right. I'll and go take a nap. He'll be fine. Go <laughs> and take it. And go take your ass to sleep and take a nap. <laughs> I love that, man. All right, so tell me, Clifton, last memorable meal that you had at a restaurant. Anything come to mind, man, of the last great place you ate at? I can't remember the last good meal I've had in a restaurant because during the pandemic, I haven't been eating out as, mm -hmm. as much. And I would say Cafe Memoc in, out in Duluth. We, my girl is a vegan, so we would go there once, twice a week. And I would have fish and she would have all the vegetarian stuff. So that's probably the last time I haven't eaten out in a long time. That would probably be the last yeah. time. And other than that, I would say maybe the Capitol Grill where I have seafood. And so I would say Mamak and the Capitol okay. Grill. All right. Yeah. And it's good to know restaurants are starting to open back up and we're feeling a little bit better about yeah. patronizing yeah. them again because yeah. it's been a tough run. How about a place you're yeah. looking forward to traveling to, brother? Where's on your list, man, that you have to go to? I've never been to Africa. I was supposed to do a movie in South Africa years ago. So I can't wait to go back to the motherland and visit any part of Africa. I, I, I think I want to start off in Egypt and then I want to work my way down, to, especially West Africa. I think my family has drawn our roots back to Senegal, visit West Africa, where most of the slaves, you know, were taken from West Africa. And then I want to go to the Cannes Film Festival. I love to go to the Cannes Film Festival. And then I want to go to Atlantis. I would love to go to Atlantis. So I think Atlantis, Atlantis is going to be the first trip. Atlantis in the Bahamas? Yeah. In the Bahamas, yeah. yeah. Okay, man. That's, that, I love that. They're, those are all good spots, man. And visiting the motherland, I think, is on everybody's list these days. So yes, let's jump yes, in sir, here, yes, man. Sir. So how are you and where are you? I think you're in Atlanta these days, right? Yes, I'm living in Atlanta. I've been down here about eight years and I think I'm, I'm doing okay. I went through a, a rough divorce about 10, 12 years ago and it wiped me out financially. Quite frankly, when I came down here, I was homeless. I was down to $100, man. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me, Brad. When I met you, I didn't understand Hollywood. I really wanted to be a football player. I never wanted to be an actor and I didn't understand any of the dimensions of what were, was about to happen to me 
as my career took off. So when I hit rock bottom about eight years ago, man, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I was able to clear my life out and get rid of a lot of people that were really takers and not anybody that wanted to see me do right. well. So that was in the transition, but it was a healthy one. I was in Toronto doing a movie and I remember the pastor was preaching and he said, sometimes God's got to put you in a mess to clean you up. So it's been a long time since we've talked. I really got caught up in that Hollywood lifestyle. I'm much better mentally, spiritually, health-wise. So I feel good, but I'm grateful. And I bring that experience up because sometimes you think about being homeless and running out of money is a negative thing. But for me, it was the most positive thing ever happened to me. I'm happy to hear, man, that you're doing better. And next time, if you're ever down to $100 again, you always have somebody that you can call right here. I had that cricket phone and couldn't find your number. <laughs> no, and, and, and when I say $100, literally $100, but thank God I came down to Atlanta to do the show, States and Sinners, which has been on for the last six seasons. I've been blessed. Brad, you lived in Hollywood for a long time, and you've made uh, a ton of money. You've been in the restaurant business. I remember meeting your dad back within my New York. So you can, and the NBA, when you go into the NBA, not to get too far, but when you go into the NBA, they give you workshops and things around how to handle all the outside pressures. We need that for acting. We really do. We need it for actors. We need it for actresses because you might go from a little black boy like me from the hood making no money to all of a sudden you're a millionaire a few times over and not know how to well, handle it. Let's, let's stay on that for a moment. I, and I want to come back to the Hollywood thing. I want to dive into that with you considerably, mm -hmm. but I want to talk a little bit about your growing up in D.C. And as you mentioned, we've known each other, you know, since the 80s, man. So I've watched the arc of mm -hmm. your career and saw you in the very mm -hmm. beginning stages before it really happened for you. But mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about yes, your early life in Washington, D.C. You went to the Duke Ellington School of Performing Arts. So who influenced that decision for you? Were your parents into the arts? Let me go back and I want to clear up uh, a little bit of misconception there and, and information. I went to, of course, every, I don't know if you know what most people know, my nephew is a sportscaster, James Brown. And JB, I'm sure you met, have you met JB before? Yeah, so JB has always been an inspiration in my life. JB's mother was my sister and we both, my sister and I had the same mom in different dance. And my mom died very tragically when I was four. And my father was probably like, I would say a functioning alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So I was raised pretty much with JB. So JB went to DeMatha. So I went to DeMatha and JB was an All-American basketball player. So I went to, Ma to DeMatha one year to play basketball and I was simply dreadful. I mean, I don't even know if there's a word for how bad I was in basketball. I told somebody the other day, I was the only person in the history of basketball who did, even though I was on the bench and I was like seventh, eighth man coming off the bench, I'm the only guy you ever met that did not want to go into the game. <laughs> I, I, I was just, I, I was a football player, so I was a fish out of water. So I left the math after one year and I transferred to St. Anthony's Catholic High School in a, in, a, in, in a city of D.C. And John Thompson Sr. was my high school basketball coach. So as we know, I didn't make that team. And they didn't have a football team. So that summer before I went to St. Anthony's, I saw a play at a place called Workshop for Careers in the Arts where Debbie Allen taught dads, Glenda Dickerson, Charles Brown, Kiki Shepard, all of them worked at Workshop for Careers in the Arts. In the summer of 1974, I, Workshop for Careers in the Arts was a program with 
outside of the Washington, D.C. school district area, inside of D.C., but it operated outside of the school mm -hmm. system. But they got their students from the school systems. In 74, they merged and they, they found a school, Western High School, which they turned into Duke Ellington. Wow. So that summer, I moved with the company into Duke Ellington, and we named it Duke Ellington, and I took classes in the summer, and then I went on to college in 74. So that's how I was connected to Duke Ellington. And of course, all my teachers, Debbie Allen, Peggy Cooper Kayfridge, Charles Brown, Glenda Dickerson, it's a couple of Skipper Driscoll, some names that are eluding me right now, Charles Augins, who started the core of Duke Ellington. Yeah, that's rich, man. And Cliff, I think about the Mid-Atlantic, the Washington, D.C., Baltimore corridor, and the stream of mm -hmm. culturally impactful names that have called that area home over the years. I mentioned Marvin Gaye, Duke Ellington, Frederick mm -hmm. Douglass, Mary Bethune, Mary McLeod oh, Bethune, Gil Scott Heron, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Obviously, Howard University is in D.C. Ta-Nehisi called yes. it the Mecca in his memoir. What would you say, man, yes, what did you take away, Clifton, that was unique? about you know, your upbringing in that environment in, in D.C.? Well, I don't know where you're getting these wonderful questions from, bro, but that is, nobody's ever asked me that. And growing up in Washington, D.C., I think it's unique to any place that I know of, maybe other than Detroit, because you're surrounded by just African-American people. And the stores, the police, the, the schools, it's, it's just, it, it was just amazing. And... I, I think that it gives you a sense of pride. It gives you a sense of a strong foundation. And then I tell everybody, we had some great white folks. I had some great white teachers. I went to DeMatha, which is pretty much a predominantly white school, but I didn't experience the kind of deep-seated racism that I've seen in the South and some other places, even in the North, because I stayed in detention all the time. And I don't know if these guys are still alive, but they even hear this broadcast. But Charlie Wiles and a couple of my other guys, I was always in detention with those guys. And they, and we were like brothers, man. We were like brothers. I, I've never experienced any kind of ugliness when it comes to racial prejudice at DeMatha, at St. Anthony's, at workshops around the Washington, D.C. area, man. Because it, it, I, I just felt like I grew up in a, a very special place. Right. And, it's, and, and, and anytime I work, I always rep not just Washington, D.C., but the entire DMV area because... It's a wonderful place, especially back in the 60s when I was coming up, just a place of pride and love and just support and everything. I had great teachers, black and white, who supported me in everything mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing. You know, man, and I'm a huge Gil Scott Heron fan, and he's got a track called 17th Street. You know, I come from 17th Street. That's yes, where sir. the brothers don't mess around. And I just had this yes, vision, sir. Cliff, of D.C. as being this, like, culturally awake and aware. And, of course, ta Coates is another level. But he cats like yourself, man, are just conscious brothers, man, that, that come out of that environment just made differently. One of, one of the things is that I've had some amazing men in my life. When my mom passed, my dad worked nights and... We moved from one area of D.C. to another area, uh, Mayfair. I heard you say something about Mayfair. And my dad met a lady, God rest her soul, who became like my surrogate mother named Imogene Johnson. But her son's name was Daryl Harvey. And Daryl, I think, was 16 and I was seven. And he took me under his wing, Brad, and just taught me and, and helped raise me. Because my dad worked nights. 
So when my dad went to work, sometimes my dad would work overtime. I was just by myself. I, I stayed with JB and my sister, Marianne, on the weekends. But during the week, I was by myself at seven years old. And I didn't have anybody there except the people in the neighborhood who would help raise you also. It was a time when a whole village would raise you. But I always had Miss Jean, who I called Miss Jean, and I had Daryl. And Daryl was like one of the toughest guys in my neighborhood because we lived right across the street from Parkside, which was one of the roughest hoods back in the day, like Berry Farms. It was only one or two people out of my whole complex of hundreds and hundreds of apartments that could cross the street into Parkside after dark. And Daryl Harvey was like my angel when he raised me, man. So I grew up with strong, I, I know, I think it's Sterling Brown, it says strong men keep a coming on. Daryl Harvey, JB, my nephew JB, who's always been my inspiration, or men like you, Brad, men like your dad, who taught us how to be men, man, and gave me that. And then my sister made you humble. JB was a big time basketball star, Brad. And man, if he came home and didn't empty the trash, whoa, he'd get his head popped <laughs> off. So it's, it, it really never became, and, 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 and I'm going to answer this last part of it. As you translate that into fame, as you, Brad, you, we all know, Brad, you, was, you are still that guy in the restaurant business and always cool, always sharp, always personable, which you learned from your dad. But you're one of those guys also, and you stay humble because we all made a lot of money back in the day. And my sister wouldn't care if you was a millionaire or a homeless. You still had to take out the trash and be nice to people and be respectful. That's right. So that's what I carry with me today. Yeah, man. Well, I, I, I sense that clip all through your life, man. I, I've sensed that uh, you had that kind of, kind of foundation. So you attended Emerson, yes, sir. correct, in Boston? Yes, so you sir. go yes, from sir. Washington, D.C. and the environment that you just described to Boston in the 70s, which is a little different than Boston Ooh. today, right? You had South End, yes, you had yes, a sir. whole nother kind of element going on in Boston. What yes, was that sir. experience, yes, Cliff? And, and what made you choose Emerson? <laughs> the funny thing about me, Brad, is, is that there's a lot of my story that I don't, I haven't really talked about. I'm not exactly sure how I got out of high school, one. <laughs> I never really wanted to be an actor, Brad, but I was like the biggest cut up ever, man. And I never studied for the SATs. I never even heard of the SATs until I got, by the time I got to workshop, they began to work with me. They helped me get into SAT classes. I never took classes, but they told me about everything. So I took the SATs, Brad, with all the guys. Back in our day, they had tracking mm -hmm. systems. So I was in 12C. Everything past C, D, E, and F, you in there with criminals and gangsters. And so I took the SATs with all those guys from C, D, E, and F, and G. And we basically tied up the partner and was walking around the room shouting out answers on the test. I was like, I had this cat who played ball. His name was Duck Williams. I never forget. Cause when I do lectures, I tell people, I say, Hey, yo, Duck, what you got for number 86? He said, see, I said, I'm gonna put D. That's how I took the SATs. I know it doesn't sound believable, but the SATs, I got 580 on my SATs, Brad. Now the worst score you can get is probably like 750. But back in the day, if you got a 580, Technically, they give you 200 for signing your name. So I got 380 on my SATs. So when I got to, when they told me I was going to Emerson, I almost passed <laughs> out. I was like, 
<laughs> oh, wait a minute. Is God in the room with me? So a lot of stuff that I talk about, Brad, it's all been like a miracle, man, because I didn't go to workshops to even go to be a part of the program. They kept coming out to ask me. I was just hanging out and they took me in. So um, my JB sister, Alicia, went to Emerson. So when the counselor, and this is why I'm telling people this, man. If you see me on TV, don't tell me what you can't do. You're talking to a little black boy whose mother died tragically. Father was a, 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 a functioning alcoholic. I got 580 on my SATs, technically 380 without the 200 for your name. I got a full scholarship to college and I was the worst actor in my program. I just never stopped. So when I got to Emerson, I was like, whoa, first of all, I was like, how did I get here? And I was still prepared to go to college. My college, my high school counselor asked me in, in the 11th grade, Brad, do you want to go to college? And I never even knew what he was talking about. Hmm. I said, what is college? He said, that's where you go after high school. I guess I'll go there. I don't know. I think about being a bus driver since I ain't really going to make it as an actor or a football player. So when I got to Everson, I was a fish out of water. Like I wasn't great in most of my classes. I took drama because I, I was starting to fall in love with the arts. And at that time, Brad, it was probably one of the most racist cities to be in, especially if you venture in the South Boston. Now I'm another fish out of water because I never experienced the kind of racism that I saw when I was in Boston. And I had to really adjust to it. Luckily on campus and all the college campuses, it was cool. But once you step off that campus and you get outside of Roxbury, man, it could be really dicey. And I, I think, I gotta say, I think my angels brought me through that period, Brad, because South Boston as you was very racist at the time. But I also had a plethora of great teachers, great people, black and white, and very diverse, Latino, a few Asians. And we were all like family on all the college campuses. But there's, there was a lot of problems yeah. there. No, I, I remember Boston well in the 70s, man. And it could be a very yeah. dicey place to venture out. So let's shift to the West Coast, Cliff. So <laughs> LA in the late 80s, man, was an active time for African-Americans in the entertainment business. You, Debbie Allen had a different mm -hmm. world. Arsenio had the Arsenio Hall show. Keenan kicked off in Living Color. Will with Fresh Prince. Movies and music. There was definitely mm -hmm. a period of emerging Black talent impacting entertainment. You had Upstart yes, Production Company, Spike, Hudlin Brothers, what have you. What led mm -hmm. to your decision mm -hmm. to move to L.A.? What year was that? And talk about your early experiences <laughs> in L.A. What was life like for Clifton Powell when he first hit, hit the town? Oh, Lord Jesus, Brent. I'm not exactly sure where you're getting your information from because this is some of the most poignant questions I've ever answered in my whole career. What happened in New York was we all were doing theater. We're talking about Denzel and Sam and Angela Bassett, Ving, Charlie Dutton, Wesley. Everybody was there. And things just dried up. And so everybody was talking about, we're going out west. And I'm like, hell, I'm going too. And it took me, when I said that was, might've been in 85. By the time I got there in 89, of course, I was dating a young lady who I met in my New York days. And I, I'm not going to say her name, but you know who it is. But I was dating her. And when you first get to LA, man, you see those, you know, what I, well, I'm going to go back a little bit, Brad, because this is a really heavy piece. But I'm going to try to make it the biggest memory I have of L.A. is watching those Rose Bowl games on TV when you're back east. 
and you're watching Soul Train. Those are the two memories in Venice Beach. So as soon as I got out to LA, I, oh no, 77, there was a show called 77 Sunset Strip. I said, man, I'm walking down Sunset Strip. And ironically, Brad, that's where I saw you on Sunset Strip, I think, or in the Melrose. So I'm walking down Sunset Strip and I'm like, look at the palm trees. The next day I'm at Venice Beach. And when you first get there, Brad, you don't know all the rooms. There was a beach party at Venice Beach and I had my swim trunks. But I had another envelope full of pictures and resumes, which somebody told me later, you're not supposed to do that. I think the first thing you do is try to figure out how you're going to make a living. And so I did a lot of temp work. I substitute taught. I worked at Covenant House. And that was what, that was after you gave me the job at the Roxbury. So I ran into you. I think the girl I was dating at the time with the school was one of your friends. And you put me right in the Roxbury as one of the back waiters. And it was a magical time. I just did not have a plan. And so if there are any artists listening, try to put together a plan. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a plan, Brad. And I think I just was able, to, because I have a blessing on my life, to meet people like you, other people that referred me to their agencies and would make calls on my behalf that helped me get an agent. And so the early years was interesting because I was poor as hell and I didn't have, my first car was a scooter. I had a little scooter and I just, by the time I got there after doing 10 years in New York, you just are still and ready for anything. And I think that's how I made it mm -hmm. through. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I, I can relate to that. And I also relate to your vision of LA by watching the Rose Bowl in January and Soul Train. Those were two, yes, my two of my reference points as well. So Clifton, in those early years, man, was there ever a time where you were like, damn, this might not work out, this acting thing, man? And, and were you thinking you had made the right decision or were you getting some signs that you were going in the right direction? You know, Brad, I don't think I ever thought about mm -hmm. that. I don't think I ever thought about, I, I think because I didn't have a plan, I never thought about making mm -hmm. it. I didn't come out there to really be a star. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think any of us did. I think we all came out there because we were just trying to make ends meet and make a living. I know for me, it was more about trying a new horizon that at least put several dollars in my pocket. I didn't really think of it as I was going to be famous one day. I, I, I remember my agent's name, my manager at the time, she said in 92, she said, do you want to be rich and make money? I said, not really. I just want to work. She said, I want to be rich and make money. Too. And I, and so to be honest, Brad, I, I got to tell you, I never really had a plan to make mm -hmm. it. I just kept working. I never knew that actors that did movies didn't do television or commercials. I didn't know they didn't do music videos. I didn't know they didn't do school, high school plays. I did it mm -hmm. all, man. And I just, I heard somebody say, you just keep throwing stuff up against the wall and something's going to stick. I think that's what my plan was. I just, and I don't even know consciously if I thought about that plan of throwing stuff up, I just was just trying to do my work and at least make enough of a living to survive. Right. right. Well, back to what you said, man, about there, there may be needing to be some kind of curriculum that young folks can follow because like they train NBA players yeah. now about what to do with their money. Yeah. You come yeah. to Hollywood with no plan, yeah. man. And that's uh, no plan because that's a risky endeavor. Cliff, yeah. Was there a moment, man, or a part that you landed early on there where you were like, oh man, this might be the one, this might be that moment that turns things around for me and really sets me off. Yeah. Was there a part that you got? 
that you would say was that part? I would say, first, I, I want to go back and, 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 and just clean this up uh, just a little, Brad. I, I can't say I didn't have some dark days in New York. I remember I was trying to be a catering waiter and I just messed all of that up. And I've had some days where I sat down and said, I never questioned being an actor. I just was like, wow, this is tough. The thing that saved me is I have a degree in education. So I always found myself at Covenant House or I was able to su supplement. So that helped me not really fall into the doldrums that I think some people get into and then they quit. And I never had that because I always I had a way to find a job. So I think I want to say House Party won, but it just it was a great platform that got me seen by Charlie Dutton, Charles Dutton, who I pay homage mm -hmm. to, like my big brother, in, in that show, Rock. That show, I was supposed to do one episode, and it turned into 10 episodes. And I was living with my girl at the time, right off of La Brea, and my phone rang every 20 minutes for almost five hours straight because the show was live. And I said, oh my goodness something is happening here. And I said, wow, I, I, wait a minute. It's just a magical mm -hmm. feeling, man. And I would say that role, which was supposed to be a one role as a cracked out crackhead, turned into Andre the drug dealer in 10 episodes and put my name on the map in Hollywood. Yes, it did, brother. Yes, it did. So let's talk about Hollywood as a culture, Cliff. I know Denzel has said, Hollywood is a sign I live in Los Angeles. He's referring to the Hollywood sign. He said, I, I live in Los Angeles. <laughs> I, I've never yeah, heard that one. Yeah. I've never heard that but one. I, but, you know, I think, as is the case, man, with any place, the industry that is dominant mm -hmm. has some impact on the culture and why people mm -hmm. choose to live in a place. In turn, that influences the culture of a particular. The entertainment mm -hmm. business is the straw that stirs the drink in Los Angeles. Status, the perception of success. Mm -hmm proximity to celebrity, mm -hmm. which suggests that you have, it plays out differently yes, in LA than, than most places, man. What, what car you pull up to in the valet can say a lot about when your last paycheck arrives. You, you trying to make, you trying, you trying to make me cry again. You trying to make me cry again. I'm just, I'm speaking as someone who's had many different oh levels of automobiles. So automobile. sometimes you park way down the street, right? Way, way, way. Hey, Brad. And, and sometimes you don't even, you walk right past your car. <laughs> right. <laughs> so give me your oh thoughts, Cliff, if you will, man, on, on the Hollywood effect. Oh, man, Brad, I tell you, because you've known me the beginning and you know me now and it's a thousand times better and I'd say a million times better. I probably last week put more money in the bank than I've done in my whole career. And I couldn't have done that had I not had the Hollywood experience, had I not hit rock bottom, had I not understand what that element attracts. But what I, what I do, Brad, when I look back, I say, that's Hollywood. The real problem is nobody talks about the history of Hollywood. It didn't just happen when we got there in the eighties and the nineties. Hollywood has been that way since its beginning, the 1900s. It's the movie business. It's what Dr. King has a speech called the drum major instinct. Everybody wants to be first. Everybody wants to be important. Everybody likes to see their names in light, even when they don't deserve mm -hmm. it. And if you really want to understand what narcissism is or what 
ego is or what fame can do to your ego or the perception of fame, listen to that, that drum major instinct. So it's a place where it's sunny. It has some of the most beautiful women that I've ever, I saw a girl in Bank of America that was so damn fired. I didn't even put, I didn't even go up to the window. I just, I think me and about five other guys were just standing there staring at her and forgot to even do our damn business. I'm serious. It's some of the most beautiful women, the most beautiful men, beautiful, everybody's jogging and working out every damn day. You got the most beautiful beaches. And if you leave LA proper and go down to Newport, you think you went to Mars on the beach. It's just amazing. And you have some of the most incredible sports teams in the country. It's 80 to 90 degrees every day. It's a lot of money to be made. You got the element of danger that wants to hang out with entertainers. You got Venice Beach where homeless, the homeless mingle with everybody because it's so sunny out there. Some guys say, if you're going to be homeless, the best place to be is in LA. So you got an element of almost everything out there. And when you become well-known or famous or like famous, you attract all mm. of that. And you have someone, again, the Roxbury, uh, what was your other restaurant, Georgia. Uh, Brad? The Georgias, where on any given night, and I remember the last time I saw you in Georgias, my ex-wife was pregnant, I was walking her. I'm, I said, Brad, this thing is popping like fish <laughs> grease in here. At any given time, you might see Tupac. You might look over and see Denzel. You might see you. You might see a Debbie Allen. You might see Elton John came into the Roxbury. So you are in an element. And, and then you might look over and see some hood cats who just want to hang out with the beautiful stars, the women, Halle Berry and the, and the Meg J-Lo. So when you mix all of that together and you don't know the history of what you landed in, because on top of that, like Dr. Dre, pack your, pack your vest in the city of sex. It's fun. It's exciting. It's sexy. It's dangerous. It's, it's relaxing. It's, it's enthralling. It's exotic. It sucks you in. And you got to have a plan and you got to have some kind of willpower not to get sucked into it. And that's LA. And you can go three hours the other way and go skiing. Then you can go another hour or two the other way and go jet skiing and, and parasailing on, on Catalina Island. What, what can you say, Brad? That's why everybody in the summertime, what is in May, all the ball players are headed out to LA in, in about another couple of months, a couple of weeks. I was at a party one time at a club, Brad. And I had a couple of dollars at this time. I was upstairs looking out into the crowd. It was so many ballers and bad chicks in there. I didn't even go downstairs. I said, first of all, my money ain't long enough. And it, it, it ain't no sense of me being down there. And it is, it's what you drive. And I remember walking past my car. I came out of the mall and these girls said, oh, that's Clifton Pound from Rock. And I looked at my little Ford Festiva, which top of the line Ford Festiva, fully loaded, only $1,800. I, I walked right past wow. my car, Brad, and walked into the beauty shop and stood in the doorway. Somebody said, can we help you? I was like, no. And, and, and you know what, Brad? And I'm going to say her name. I called Rose Catherine. Mm -hmm. And I said, Rose Catherine, is, what's happening to me? She says, what happened? I said, it's coming out of the mall. And these girls were calling my name because they saw me on the show. 
And I was too embarrassed to walk to my car. She said, welcome to Hollywood. Right. Rose Catherine Pickney <laughs> Clifton's talking about as an entertainment executive who's had many jobs over the years and put a lot of people at work. So Clifton, I want to ask you, man, celebrity, as you're just alluding to, is a byproduct of success in the entertainment business for some. And it's a slippery slope, man. There's life under the microscope aspect that can make both your triumphs and your setbacks public. And of course, amplified by social media mm -hmm. these days, which is a whole nother element. Mm -hmm. You're a dad, your son, Clifton Powell Jr., whose name was recently everywhere and your celebrity mm -hmm. amplifying his social life, right? He's spending a little bit of time with mm -hmm. uh, the ex-president's daughter. And all of a sudden that's blasted out all over the place. And it's yes, Clifton sir. Powell's yes, son, sir. you know, yes, so. <laughs> You've spoken about fatherhood, man, and the joy mm -hmm. of working on creative projects with your son. Uh, I should also mention you have yes, a, a daughter. Yep, yes, Maya. Maya. And so I would imagine, Cliff, having kids keeps you in the real world to a degree. But would you say that your celebrity adds another layer to how you interact and manage your life with, with kids? And of course, being a black father, black children, given the what we've just seen in the last few years, what we've always known to be true, the situation mm -hmm. with the police. But how do you factor in the degree of difficulty that being a celebrity yourself puts on how you manage your fatherhood, the aspect of how you raise your children? Hmm. That's a great question. The thing, the thing about me, Brad, is because of the way I was raised, my buddies and, and my girl says, you know who you are? You're Clifton Powell. You're a celebrity. I, and I don't really... I don't necessarily buy into that because I've seen celebrities come and go. To me, and I'm going to say this publicly, if you're not opening a movie, you're not a star, really. If your name, if, if it doesn't say Denzel Washington in or Will Smith in or Jamie Foxx or Halle Berry in a movie, you're not a star. You're a working actor. And that's how I've always carried myself. There's a lot of perks that come from being uh, well-known and being very popular and being held on a pedestal. But I try very hard. I, I meditate and pray every day for the last 35 years, Brad. And because my sister taught me, who was like my mom, to be humble. Your gift comes from God. And you got to hold on to that. So when I manage my kids, first of all, I was out of my house 80% of the time when I was married and trying to build my career with a plan that I didn't even have. I just had to go and try to get the money and take care of my family. So I never even thought about the fame part. So I never really <clears throat> am gonna take credit for how Maya and Clifton really turned out. I have to give my ex-wife, Kimberly, a lot of credit for being in the trenches with the kids and handling a lot of embarrassment that I caused with my movement because it's a lot of and people don't understand this. I heard Shaq, and this is a very detailed question, so I'm going to try to wrap it up, Brad. But I heard Shaq talking the other day, and, I, and, the, talk, and, the, and the speaker was trying to spin him around to talk about Shaq. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. And when Shaq says, whoa, whoa, it ain't like me and you, Brad, because he's seven <laughs> foot two. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And immediately you shut up. And he said, no, don't put that on her. So I have to own, but all of what I experience, what I put on my ex-wife with my kids, but she shielded from my kids because she did a great job of shielding a lot of stuff from my kids. But I have to say that what I'd like people to understand 
is that when you take a young guy like Shaq or you take a young guy like me and put him in the middle of Hollywood under those bright lights with all that money and all the temptation, they need some guidance. And there's nobody to really give us that guidance. So as much as we messed up, you got to give us a pass a little bit to try to understand it from our perspective. And it has nothing to do with whether you're married or single because the divorce rate in Hollywood is 90% and it's tough. So I always came at my kids, Brad, from a place of just being Clifton Powell, the father, and not Clifton Powell, the star. <clears throat> Even now with my son, the girl that I'm dating, her name is Marquita. At 64, she's just taught me, I'm 66. She just taught me how to love. I, I, I didn't know how my upbringing and my dysfunctional childhood added to my dysfunction inside of relationships because I was moving so fast. I was having so much fun. I was making so much money. I didn't have to care how I made other people mm -hmm. feel. I was handsome. I was cut up and I had a lot of money. And then you meet a woman who doesn't care who you are, how much money you have, what you look like, how great you are in bed. Don't give a daggone how many times you've been on TV. And she's demanding that you treat her with love and respect. And I didn't even know what that looked like. So the reason I'm saying that is that I thank her for, but also I'm now trying to send Clifton different memes about how to treat Sasha. Mm -hmm. So one of the memes that I sent him is that treat your woman or the woman you love like you would want a man to treat your daughter. And so in handling all of that, I'm still on the outskirts with Maya and Clifton telling my grandkids, telling them how to be a better man because my job in closing is to make my son and my, ba and my babies, I call them my babies, better than I was. I don't know about your dad, Brad, but no, my dad wasn't a learned man and he, half the things that we've learned, my father couldn't teach mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. And we need our fathers. That's why I'm real big on being a father. We need fathers, black fathers, white fathers, Latin fathers, but the black community, we need strong black yeah, fathers. Brother. Don't be mad at me, Brad, because you asking these No, that's a beautiful answer, man. Bro. And these, these are some long, hard, good, great, the best questions I've ever been asked because we know that you've done your homework, man. I take the time to break it down so people can understand being an actor is just what I do as a living. That's not who I am. And I have to make sure that I stay true to that because if you don't, and the one thing that helped me when I hit rock bottom, because you'll run into some people and say, oh, Cliff Powell, he's an arrogant asshole. Oh, he's this. Oh, he got it. He had a lot of women. Oh, he's this. I did all of that. And I was an asshole and I was a jerk sometimes. And I was arrogant. You probably didn't see it. <clears throat> but when I hit rock bottom, I had to sit in that and grow and learn. I didn't try to be arrogant. But when you're making a lot of money, Brad, and you used to pull up on a scooter or Form Festiva, so now you're pulling up in, in, in the latest uh, Range Rover or your driver pulls up and they take a pictures of Clifton. I went to one party. I got almost a thousand people at a party I went to. Clifton Powell, you can't help but feel important. And that thing can go to your head in a matter of a second. So there you have it. Man, I have to say, man, I appreciate your honesty, Cliff, and, and being willing to just be open, man, and dive into these subject matters that you are. And going back to what I said at the top of it, there's an evolution, man, that we all evolve. Yes, we sir. start as a certain thing, yes, with, and our yes, life sir. experiences teach us, and some of us yes, are sir. able to take yes, those sir. experiences and 
improve our life and the lives of people around us, our kids. And that's the idea, man. We just, we're trying to get better. So changing the subject here for a moment and the slap as it has been called and, you know, and been dissected by, from many different (laughs) angles. I'm curious, man. I knew when I was coming on a podcast with a smart guy like you. It wasn't going to be no general question. <laughs> Let me, Do you eat no, chicken? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I might want to know that, but that's not for this. But I'm curious though, man, because we've all listened to everybody's point of view and Chris feels this way, Wilson, <laughs> all of that. But I'm curious how you reacted in the moment and with the distance of time since that has occurred, what, if anything, mm-hmm. do you think that that said about black culture in Hollywood? Is there some bigger statement that was made by that, or was it just two guys in an unfortunate situation? Brad, man, I don't know where you get these damn questions from, bro. <clears throat> I should have had my sake or my red wine this morning, Jack. I think what, what, when I do lectures or I want to put together a one-man show called An Evening with Clifton Powell, I want to help people because I come out of education and counseling before I became a well-known actor. And... I often try to look at, there's four sides to every story, Brad, as you, and you've been in the limelight as long as I've been in the limelight, if not longer, because your dad had his place and there's people coming through their jazz. And so we've been in the limelight for a long time and there's always four sides to a story. And I think the story starts with Jada Pinkett saying that she never, and I've had to analyze this in the last couple of weeks and talk out with my girl. Because I want to be right on, Dr. King said, I want to be right on the war question. I want to be right on the slap question. I think it goes back deeper than the slap. Jada Pinkett states that one, she never wanted to get married. She never wanted to marry Will. And her mom and them basically talked her into it. And she said, I came down the aisle and was sick. Why? Did she, was she forced to marry him because he was Will Smith? I don't know. But. Me and you dated a while, Brad, before we both settled down. A lot of people mess with you because of who you are. Some people mess with you because you Brad Johnson or Clifton Powell or Denzel. Some people want money. Some people just want to say, hey, my girl was with him and I heard he was this. It's a lot of stuff that shouldn't come into play. So it starts with how dysfunctional it was for them to come together in the first place. Because I think Will has always been trying to, and then, and I got to say this, and maybe they'll get mad at me, but I don't know why Jada thinks we don't think she ever slept with Tupac. But if you look at the, the pictures, if you listen to the words and the poems that they exchanged, it seemed like they had an intimate relationship. And Will Smith landed in the middle of that intimate relationship with a cat like Tupac, who is a street cat from Baltimore, who was hanging out in, in, in East in Oakland and then came down and got with Shug and, and, and some of the tough guys out of the streets. And he really wasn't that way. Shug ain't no real gangster. Shug is a nice guy, played football, came back to the hood and started doing security. Now, I respect all of these guys. I respect Dr. Dre, Shug. I work with all of them. I don't have no hate. But Tupac was not a gangster, but he had an edge that women are drawn to him. He was an attractive guy. He was charismatic. I did the Cali Love video with Tupac. And I saw him, ironically, Brad, outside of Georgia's about two weeks before he got killed. One of the most funny guys. So I think we got to go with those two elements as to having Will fall into a marriage 
with someone who really technically has told him she didn't want to marry him and who has paraded this guy Tupac almost in his eyes like the whole marriage. And so now I think he's off balance with all, after this all this Asenia stuff happened, he's off balance. And I think that's what led to the mm. slap, trying to prove that he, and Will Smith, and I know you've met Will a thousand times and probably know him better than I am, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. And ain't no hood guy at all. Now he got a, a lot of hood guys around him, but Will Smith is what I would call a guy from the suburbs. He's a nice kid, young man, a very personable, very loving and gentle guy. I don't know what it's like to be in the house with him every day, but I know when I received him. So when I think about the slap brag, I have to go back and analyze because I was, I first I thought it was a joke. And I, and then after a while, I still thought that at one point, I thought them, the, the Academy Awards was in on it. You know what I'm saying? Because I couldn't believe it. So I think we have to start there before we start talking about what is done to our culture. We have to. And do we feel bad for Jada? At first, I was mad at Jada for putting Will down in public and all the things that some people are saying about her emasculating. I think all of that is there. But let's look at what she landed in at 18, 19 years old, getting pregnant and being forced to marry a guy that she really wasn't really into. And I know I may catch some flack, but if y'all sit down and do y'all research like I've done, then maybe from a counseling standpoint, you'll see what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Brad, marriage is one of the most incredible undertakings that you will ever take in your life. I've been in a relationship for eight years, man, and I learned so much about myself because I'm living right now with one of the baddest ladies, and that's a huge statement that I've ever met in the history of dating. I've been dating since 1972. So when we talk about that in the context of the slap, I think it's outside of what it does to the culture. Mm -hmm. Let's don't get too excited about the Academy Award. It's only a few African-Americans that won the Academy Award in the history of the whole damn thing. In fact, Hattie McDaniels won her award and she couldn't even go up and accept it because she couldn't sit anywhere with anybody else. So let's don't, let's don't hold the Academy Awards up like all of a sudden they're touting diversity. They're doing better and, they, and then they need to do better and they need to continue to do better. But I don't think it's going to stop the next wave of young African-American men and women, Latino, Asian women, LBGTQ community. It's not going to stop any of that because this was an isolated incident. But I think we got to go be, be beyond the surface and go below the surface and really try to understand it from Jada Pinkett's perspective, from Will's perspective, because if somebody said he should be in therapy, I think the whole family needs to be in therapy. I think a lot of us need to be in therapy. A lot of our families need to be in therapy. And I think we need to say some prayers for them and hope they can get through this. I'm with you, man. I'm with you. And you led me right into my next question here, Cliff. And I'm curious, man, and we've all talked a lot about wellness and mental health more lately, I think in the mm -hmm. last couple of years. And plus we're both very close in age. And I think as we get older, we want to master that mm -hmm. part of our lives. But I'm curious what you do, man, to keep yourself balanced. Come on, Brad, man. I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to get through this. <clears throat> and you've always been somebody that I've looked at and admire, man, and, and the way you carried yourself, the way you were personable and you were kind, and the way I think you had a chance to watch a father. And I don't know what your relationship with your dad is, but I feel like it was close. I didn't have that, man. I didn't have, I was close to my dad, but my dad wasn't a learned man. And I didn't get a lot of instruction coming up. 
But I will say Daryl Harvey, my, some of my teachers and my coaches, a big John Thompson, Uncle JB, I call him, I'm his uncle. We, we laugh about it. My mother committed suicide when I was four. They found my mother in the bottom of the Anacostia River in D.C. And my mother came out of adjunct dysfunction. And early on in my career, I never talked about it, but I said, this is a part of my journey, a part of my story. My father was a great man, probably dealt with a lot of abuse in his day because he had some issues that led him to alcoholism later in his 40s and 50s. And my father at the latter part of his life ended up in the same mental hospital of St. Elizabeth in D.C. as my mom. And I've had cousins and nephews and that have dealt with drug issues and alcoholism in my family. And I made a decision, Brad, that it wasn't going to be me. Early on in my career, I, I, I discovered yoga. Because when you come out of the hood, you ain't, I ain't never heard of no damn yoga and Pilates and all that nonsense and meditation. But I knew in the beginning of my career, when I got to New York, Sam and Denzel, Esapatha Murkison, all of those actors were in front of me, LaTanya and Jim Pickens, Skeeter Ellis, some of the guys that I saw in Spell Number 7 years ago. I knew it was going to be a long journey for me, and I knew that I had to keep myself together mentally, and I could not mess around with drugs. And that's what I did. I meditated and prayed every day, and I gave homage to my mom and my dad and my teachers, and I never tried cocaine, and I never got caught up in smoking weed recreationally or just being in the home. And I, I didn't start drinking until I was 26 because coming out of a family of men and women who drank, I didn't want that to be me. But I did get caught up with drinking and gambling. And oh, my thing was always the girls, Brad. And all of it is, is a vice if you, don't, if you don't handle it well. So I'm not gonna sit here in front of you and the whole audience here and say, I haven't had my, my time. I hit rock bottom because I was gambling. I, I had a lot of women. I was drinking. But I just never caught what they call the hard time. I just pulled my shit together. And whenever I got close, I remember once I had a big party in D.C., man, and I had been up all night long drinking, and I had a room full of women and my buddies, and it was a wild night. And I didn't go to sleep. I was supposed to be at the theater at 3 o'clock. And I didn't get to the theater. I didn't go to sleep until quarter to three the next afternoon. And I don't even know how I woke up. I only slept for 10 minutes, but Angel woke me up. And I got to the theater. Luckily, I went on it in a, after intermission with Shantae and Kenny Lattimore, things that lovers do at the Warner Theater in my hometown. I knew I was going to pass out. So when I got into the dressing room and everybody was on stage and I had about 40, about 30 minutes, I doused myself with water just splashing and drinking water. I was dehydrated. I opened my eyes, Brad, and my eyes were orange. And I looked in the mirror and I said, God, if you get me through this day, I will change my life and I'll change my lifestyle. And that's the one pivotal moment. And so that's what I go back to. And I want to start, I'm going to go to SAG and talk about how we set up this platform because, but for the grace of God goes deep. And so now it's easy. Now it's easy. I don't have as much heat around my name. I still got money, but I'm not a multi. I wasn't a millionaire a few times over like I was before. I'm still a millionaire with, on paper, but 
it, it, it's not the same. I'm not, I'm involved with a different type of a woman. I don't have the same pressures. And so I, I try to get up every morning. I try to walk three days a week. I don't eat meat. I, I used to, I was smoking seven black miles a day about two years ago before the pandemic. And my girl demanded that I stop. I was at stroke level. My, my blood pressure was 197 over 89 or something. I checked my blood pressure yesterday as 123 over 80 something or whatever the great numbers are. And you have to make a decision that you're not going to quit. And I'm sorry, Brad, these questions are so poignant. I don't mean to go on and on, but these are very emotional questions. And we're living in some very trying and emotional times. I wake up every morning, I pray and I meditate. I try to eat, I try to live right and try to be a good person. But what I will say is that don't quit. All you need is faith the size of a mustard seed to make it through. Well, Cliff, I, I appreciate all of your words, man. And your journey has been inspirational, man. And that you're still here to talk about it in the way in which you do is, you know, just further inspiration. And so I'm going to, and again, once again, you've led me to, uh, and this is the, the last uh, question that I'll ask you, but with all that we've lived through in our lives, but in particular in the last couple of years, mm -hmm. man, politics has gotten crazy. Mm -hmm. The pandemic made things just oh. insane. Social justice and war and talk of nuclear yes, war as if there wasn't already enough oh, you know, worldwide stress and you've got global war. You've got a lot of things going on. You and I are both dads. And we both want to believe, I know mm -hmm. that the future is there for our kids. And yet I struggle with my optimism around that, man. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. how you feel. Are, mm -hmm. are you optimistic about the future? Man, Brad, like I said, man, I don't know. Uh, man, I don't know where you, where you get these damn deep ass questions from, bro. Brad, I was talking to Clifton the other day about him and Sasha. And when I'm, are we going to meet the Obamas? And Clifton said, Dad, you've been knowing Maya's boyfriend. She's been with her boyfriend like three or four years. You haven't met their parents. And I said, you know what? You're right about that, Cliff. So I'm going to go meet their parents first, and then maybe I'll meet the Obamas. They've been dating about a year, Brad, and they're young love and a young couple. And I'm just trying from the background to give him the best advice I can give him. The point that I'm making here is once my kids, I'm old school, Brad. Maybe I'm not sure you feel like this, but when I was coming up, when you turn 18, you had to get your ass out the house. So at 17 and a half, my sister said, you're going to be 18 in a couple of months. I'm like, yes, ma'am. It's time to get your ass out of here or pay rent. And I'm like, ooh, I don't know how I'm going to pay rent with $80 a week at where I'm working at. I don't know about that. But that's how it was. So you were grown at 18. It's the way it was. And so now that my kids are grown, I don't know if I let that get into my mind. Like I've lived my life. This is your time. Go out, have fun. I'm going to be here for guidance, but I don't really get into too much of my kids personal lives as long as they're safe. I'd say no drugs, man. They all smoke weed. Damn near. They all drink. And I just try to give them some stuff on the edges. So I don't really get into what their futures are going to be like. I just, because I'm, I'm from the old school that, okay, I raised my kids. It's my time now. And Brad, I'm 66. So you right around that age. We're on our way out of the world, bro, whether we like it or not. Now we can extend it by eating better and exercising and stuff, but ain't nobody going to come out of this thing alive. So I just, 
I worry more about the police and my son than any nuclear war. I worry more about rednecks and, and racist white people and even racist black people. I was coming out of the theater in Washington, D.C. with my grandkids who are lighter than you and your wife, Brad. And this girl said, hey, Mr. Powell, we love the Shaw's doing the Marvin Gaye story. My brother Marvin. And, she, and I had my little grandkids, they about nine. They said, she said, who are those? And this is the black girl. She said, who are those kids? I said, those are my grandkids. She said, damn, they the wrong color, ain't they? So I don't get, I don't worry about Ukraine, nuclear war. I don't worry about climate change. I don't worry about the economy. I worry more about the police. I worry more about racism and, and, and somebody running up on my daughter or my son. And I especially worry about Clifton because he's a good looking tall kid in the police. I talk to him about how to handle the police. And I worry about dangerous people hurting my kids. That's all I worry about. Everything else, I try not to project if this world is going to be here. Because I can tell you, like Dr. King said, and I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to do it in this voice. We don't learn to live together as brothers. I'm sorry to say that we will perish together as fools. And that's what we better get mm -hmm. to. We better get back to love, not just in this country, but around the world. And Brad, you grew up in love. We better get back to it, man, because ain't none of us going to be here if we don't. That whole thing that happened at the Capitol, bro, I grew up in D.C. If you had told me some people were going to run up and try to take the, 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 the Congress people out of there and change the election and beat and do what I saw, if those had been black people, they would have burnt all the Negroes and put them on a boat and sent them back to Africa. In fact, they would have walked everybody back to Africa. We are really, that's what we need to worry about. Some of these very racist, hateful people who are not just all black and white. There's a lot of black folks up in there too. Some Latinos up in there, some Asians up in there. That's what we better look out for. Clifton Powell, brother, I appreciate your time today, man, and your openness and honesty. And you've given, you know, our, our audience a lot to digest and a lot to think about, man. And, and I can tell you, brother, I'm proud of you, man. And I, I look forward to seeing you in person. I hope soon and get to hug you, man, and have a cocktail and, and just continue our, this, this 30 plus year friendship, man. It's very meaningful. Thank you for your time, brother. Can I say this before I go? And I know I've thank you so many times, bro, but I don't even think you know that giving me a job at the Roxbury, I heard you earlier say it opens up a world. I met so many named people in that restaurant, Elton John, D'Angelo, Debbie Allen, of course, Denzel, Sam, Bobby Brown, everybody came through there with me. So I want to take this moment, man, to tell you, because it's been a long time since we've seen each other, how grateful I am for you. Um, not even looking at my job resume, not saying, bro, I, I can't help you, but putting me in a position to, to, to make a living and to win. And not only that, Brad, you've always been there for me, man, on levels that I didn't understand in the beginning of a guy on your level being so nice and so humble. And you guys are looking at me now, I'm famous, but 25, 30 years ago, I wasn't. And I was just another guy knocking on Brad's door saying, hey, you, can you help me get a job? Or as I start moving, and Brad saw me moving along every other year or two. 
And I always came back to eat at George's and you always treated me like a human being, man. And I want to thank you for that, Brad. I knew this was going to be a little emotional for me, man, because I'd never forget all the kindness that you exhibited and showed me. And I've never forgotten any kindness that anybody has done for me throughout my career. God bless you, man. We both settled down now. We, we're fathers and husbands and, and boyfriends. And I'm a, I've been in a committed relationship. Man, I, I never thought I could be this way, Brad. I'm glad to see you doing well. Glad to see you happy. And I know, I spoke to your wife earlier. I know she's got to be a special woman. God bless you, man. I love, love you, man. You back, brother. Thank you so much, Cliff. That means the world to me, man. Thank, Thank you, Brad. You, man. So, folks, here we are with our segment of the show we call How We Move with Ambassador Shabazz. Ambassador, I'm left uh, a little moved by Brother Clifton Powell. How did you take, what, what a story, what a guy, huh? Absolutely. Keeping it fully real in his words, his lens, his heart, just everything's so potently open. And you can think of someone for 30 plus years in the, as you noted, 100 plus roles, films, and still you not know a person. It, so it's a testament to him as an artist um, in full character for the roles we've seen over the decades. But to get to know the real man, the real human being and his own evolution and the openness to share things as a father, as a man, as a young man growing up, his lens is a mate. I think it's key in our honesty to be able to share all of those things authentically without risk, because this is a culture now that every line can be taken out of context. But when you pause to understand one's own journey, I really did appreciate it. You know, I, I loved getting to know him differently through this process, through listening. And you know, one of the things that, that so often is said about the social media platforms like Instagram or Facebook, and I know you don't do that stuff, but there people no. live certain lives through their social media platforms. And, and often it is the better reflection we'll say of their lives, what party they just went to or what fantastic trip they just took. And of course, every beat in your life is not a good one. And I was just really taken by Cliff's unfiltered willingness to just share his rawness and his ups and downs, his challenges with being a good father, being a good husband. I think that's tough to do in this world, especially coming from there. You want to be perceived as successful. You want to be perceived as having money and fame and access. And he just broke it down and, and was as raw about that as anyone I've talked to. Well, it depends on where you are in your life. So before leaving, he said, when, before he was not to rock bottom, that's what he was holding on to. But those become facades and you, facades don't root. You need real soil, real fertilizer, real germination. You can't just make it pretty and think it's going to grow or grow nutritiously. And the life he's living now in an authentic space and place becomes key, mm -hmm. juxtaposed to Los Angeles and the illusion versus Georgia amongst people who let him just be himself without risk. I think all of us want that in life, where you can just be all of yourself without um, judgment or assessment or dispossession to be evicted because you revealed who you are. So it was really great and made me think about people finding places and spaces. We all ventured to Los Angeles. After New York, New York has its own place in the world map. 
And so for us going to Los Angeles, it was intriguing for things that he mentioned, weather, atmosphere, things grew. And what we learned later, it didn't really grow. They planted it like that. So that people have turf grass. They did, that's not fertilizer. In New York, you had fertilizer, mulch and seeds, and you ride past someone's house and it stank, but you knew that things were growing. In LA, they just laid it out. It was all done. And it feels good at first. And you think you've arrived until you realize you hadn't, that what you have isn't really what's intended. And he's just been part of a series of blessings. I, I, I chuckle at some of the things he went through earlier in life, not choosing this box or this door mm -hmm. or this shell. And yet it would reveal itself, the paths that would open up. But that's how most of our lives are. You can have it written out by 18, I'll do this by 21, something else. And depending on the left or the right of your atmosphere, what's in and around, you have to be buoyant enough to go for the next ride. Boy, you know, you're not kidding. Another thing I didn't get to uh, ask him to elaborate on, but I, I just wanted to get your take. He, he mentioned his son dating uh, the president's daughter. And wanting and asking his son, when am I going to get to meet Barack and Michelle? And his son's response, well, or his daughter's, well, you haven't asked to meet the, the parents of my boyfriend. And right. it just struck me, Ambassador, what we learn from our kids, what we learn from yeah. our children. You're a mom, I'm a dad. Yeah. I mean, isn't that, yeah. isn't that, do you have a moment like that where sometimes you just, you look at your, your child and you say, wow, yes, you just taught me something. Yeah, they're very matter of fact. And, 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 Gratefully, they're matter of fact, because some kids may not feel that open with their parents mm -hmm. to be that clear, that plain, that defining, not rude, just affirming, but juxtaposed to if we're going to be real about this. I know that you want to meet my in-laws, but you haven't met the others. Why now? And he pulled back. The difference is, I don't know the other in-laws, but of course one would want to meet the Obamas and not because they're famous, but because they were impactful. They are impactful. And I think transitional for any person in the United States, especially another, a black man in this case, really being able to, to visit a mirror, the potential of a mirror of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So when he referenced Dr. King quite a bit, so that's referential. Mm -hmm. Now we have something similar nearby, mm -hmm. something close that I, we don't have to reflect about, but I'd love that conversation. So everything in, oh, I'm sure he'll meet the Obamas. I'm sure they want to meet him too. Yeah. Look, I would have, so this is the truth. The Obamas knew of Clifton Powell long before Clifton Powell knew about the Obamas. This is true. For good, right? For good 15 or 20 years, he knew, they knew of Clifton Powell. So they may have the same wish and desire and the kids are keeping, may be the ones who are gatekeeping and keeping their lives private and to themselves word we're going to close on a question to you that i don't know the answer to no. yes what is your morning beverage ambassador what's the first thing that you consume probably water i probably start with water because i always have bottled water in and around just in terms of hydration but then i'm really mindful of electrolytes and the things like that so it might be coconut water that follows i love teas and my teas don't have to be hot they can be a, an organic or herbal tea bag put in a bottle of water just so that I am digesting that which is healthy for my body. All right. 
Now, see, I need to know that because you're going to be coming and staying with us, and I'd want to make sure I have your morning beverage at the ready as soon as you <laughs> as soon as you walk out into the living room. So that that yeah. that's my Thank plan. Thank you, <laughs> Ambassador okay. Shabazz. How we move. Thank you. Nice to see you. Thank you, my dear brother. Yeah.